This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. All right, I'm on Skype with Martin Kemp in the UK. How are you, Martin? I am good. How are you? Very good. Can you give the listening audience um, just an encapsulation of your background, please? Yeah, I began my career in natural sciences and then took postgraduate art history. And I've uh, I've worked in a number of places. I'm currently emeritus professor, which means basically I've retired from teaching at University of Oxford in the history of art. And I've written a good deal about science and art and imagery in them, and more specifically on Leonardo da Vinci, which is how we come to be here today. That's right. And I saw you and the Nova special on a particular painting that I would like to kind of focus on today, but also the scientific side of investigating artworks is very interesting to me, so I'd like to talk to you about that. And the first thing in that film that really, besides, of course, the carbon dating of the vellum, um, was the megapixels that that camera was able to take. Wasn't it something like 200 million megapixels or something? I can't remember the precise number, but it's a it's a big number to get one's one's head around. Yes, it's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Pascal Cot of Lumiere Technology is not the only person doing multispectral scanning, but uh, he's certainly a great pioneer of it and is getting extraordinary results. And basically, what it does is that. It floods light with an intense beam of light, but within a very narrow spectral band. That's to say, not the full band of white light. Because if you put all that white light on it, you would fry it. Mm-hmm. You would end up with a, a blistered and smoldering surface, uh, which limits the resolution you can normally get. But by splitting it down into 14 different bandwidths, uh, uh, you're able to do it with safety for the painting. And then you reassemble that. Or you can analyze indeed each each separate band. It is a, a fantastic technique. It's non-invasive. That's to say, you're not actually pulling out bits of pigment for for paint analysis. Um, and as far as we can tell, and this applies to X-rays and infrared, it uh, doesn't damage the picture. And you can get right down to layers of all the way back to when a piece was drawn, which is totally amazing. This is a complicated issue. Um, if you use certain wavelengths, most notably, well, the X-ray wave, wavelengths, of course, but uh, particularly with Leonardo, the infrared band outside the visible band, and Pascal and his system has uh, has two infrared bands. Uh, you that will pass through a lot of the pigments, but is absorbed by, say, carbon-rich pigments. So if somebody has drawn um, with charcoal, for instance, on the plaster priming, the gesso priming of the wooden panel, uh, the chances are if the infrared penetrates the pigment layers, it will come back to you recording that drawing in charcoal, which is extraordinary. Really? The other method, which is still being perfected, is one he's call, calling LAM. Uh, it's an acronym. I never remember acronyms. Anyway, <clears throat> it's about subtracting each layer successively so your multispectral scanning can actually get at deeper layers, even in the pigment layer, which previously was impossible. Let's talk about the painting or the drawing, I should say, that 
Peter Silverman bought. And what I want to ask you first about that is what happened to you when you very first laid eyes on the image? Because that's instantly how I seem to judge things. And I just wondered what you thought the instant you saw that image from Peter. Yeah, well, it was sent to me um, as a digital file, quite a good quality one, and uh, with a short note saying, my wife and I own this, etc., etc. And I didn't know of it, and I didn't know that one or two people had looked at it already and, uh, and given it supporters of Leonardo, including Nicholas Turner and Alessandro Vezzosi, who was the first person actually to include it in one of his publications. Uh, I looked at it, and I get sent absolutely bizarre things as by Leonardo on a weekly or even a daily basis. Oh, I'm sure. So I, I get bombarded with these things, and some of them are adjacent, you know, decent works by followers, and some of them are so far away you wouldn't believe that anybody <laughs> could entertain Leonardo as being the author. <laughs> and so I, I get these things, and I... I don't exactly groan, but I certainly don't approach them with any enthusiasm. <laughs> and uh, I looked at this and I thought, ah, uh, that is something which, whatever it is, is pretty considerable. Mm -hmm. um, it was obviously very pretty, to use a very subjective term, but that, of course, is what happens when you first react to something. It's a, it's a subjective process. And... Uh, it was obviously very polished. I I wrote back to Peter Silverman saying it's almost too good to be true. I also said it shows considerable signs of, uh, of overpaint of retouching, particularly in the costume in some of the knot work on her costume and so on, which, um, which actually proved to be right. Um, but there was that sense that this actually needed serious investigation but all the time you're saying come on don't get carried away mm. uh, don't believe this see what's wrong with it um, and there are some very clever forgeries around and I've seen quite a number of them in the last few years. I'm sure and with a piece like this it's well with any major work of art it's always guilty till proven innocent so can you just in a nutshell, kind of say how you approached this and what the discoveries were that led it closer and closer to being the work of the master? Yeah, what I do, and I should say I don't run an authentication service, uh, I get sent lots of things, and I'm perfectly willing to express an opinion, but I don't authenticate paintings. What happened in this instance is that it was clearly worth researching, so I researched it on the same basis if it was in the British Museum or if it were um, in the National Gallery in Washington or, uh, you know, whoever owns it, uh, for me, doesn't alter what you do with it. Um, uh, so it was just, it was, a, it was a job of research rather than um, a process of authentication, say, commissioned by Peter Silverman. Mm -hmm. um, and what I do is what I've... I call connoisseurship plus recognizing that judgment by eye, which is a less prejudiced term than connoisseurship, is still crucial. It's still a key thing, much as um, people listening to music judge by ear. I mean, this is actually at the heart of the experience of art. And 
you're not going to get rid of it and it's bound to be part because it, if that subjective experience works at the very highest level, then um, then it tells you one thing. If it doesn't, then it tell, tells you another. And it's not entirely arbitrary, but, uh, but uh, anyway, that subjective element is there. But what I try to do is to look at a range of factors, including historical factors, you know, can we identify the sitter? Is the costume okay? Where can we locate it? Does it fit within, uh, in this case, court portraiture of beautiful women um, in Milan at the Sforza Court in the in the fourteen nineties or whatever? And most notably, scientific analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the science, not least, prevents you making an idiot of yourself um, because it it can provide reassurance uh, that the work is actually of the period and it's not a forgery. And I think that that's perfectly clear. One or two people said, oh, well, it's a screaming forgery, but the scientific analysis um, virtually precludes that as far as anything ever totally precludes anything. So I would say it's a combination of the scientific examination now, which can be very sophisticated, um, the kind of historical environment, inserting the work into the historical context and seeing if it fits in terms of meaning, content, um, form, um, and then the the judgment by eye, which is the most refined and specific judgment saying this is by Leonardo, not by one of his pupils or not by a contemporary like Gillandio. Right. Now, one of the things the skeptics bring up is, you know, why would he do that in vellum and all this? And of course, you know, we'll we'll go into that later. But any time that I've seen a rather atypical fake, let's just say in the world of art, uh, um, by the artist, it always makes me give it a second look because, you know, a lot of times when someone is going to fake something, they really try to fake every aspect of it. In other words, they wouldn't have faked it on vellum. They would have, it would have just been a drawing on early paper if they could find something from the Renaissance time and to, to draw on or something like that. It, it, uh, it's so atypical. Yeah. In a way, this this cuts both ways, saying it's on vellum, which is not really another did use vellum, but it's not a medium which he used um, with any regularity, and it it needs to be triggered by a particular circumstance. Um, if you say, "Oh, Leonardo really didn't work on vellum." Um, and a forger would say, oh, I'm not going to do one on vellum, because nobody will believe it. The counter-argument is that a really smart forger could say, well, I'm inverting that argument, and because Leonardo is very unexpected, I'm doing something unexpected. It's a bit like uh, Van Meegeren's Vermeers, which didn't imitate the classic Vermeers of Dutch church in, of Dutch interiors, but um, invented a new kind of Vermeer early religious painting. So um, a mega clever forger can make the forgery and sort of almost invert that counter argument by saying, oh, well, you know, it's obviously not a forgery because uh, it's not doing the obvious thing. Now, with some of the analysis you saw that the person that did the work was left-handed by the way the arch was and the shadowing parts of it. Would there be any other masters 
that could create a work like that in the Renaissance period that were left-handed that you're aware of? Uh, none that I'm aware of. The counter-argument is that uh, some of Leonardo's most devoted and pious followers, pupils, would copy works with that um, left-handed shading in them. Uh, there are some drawings at Windsor which seem on, ground, on grounds of the uh, rather repetitious quality of the of the draftsmanship um, seem to be copy drawings by a pupil generally said to be Francesco Melzi, but we can't really put a name to it. So you can say, oh, well, you know, it, a left-handed work of that type at that time could be Leonardo or it could be a faithful copy. But, of course, you then say, oh, well, what's it a copy of? Mm-hmm. Right. So let's backtrack a little bit for the person that is unaware of the whole situation, how this whole piece came about. And I know that could take a long time to explain, but if you can just touch on how that all began when it came up at Christie's, how it was found later at Kate Gantz's gallery, can you just kind of explain how that all happened? Um, we now know a good deal about the provenance, let's say the earlier ownership of the of the piece um, in recent times. It was owned by Giannino Marchig, a Swiss restorer, leading restorer. He worked internationally at the, the highest level. And uh, he was trained in in Florence and uh, specialized, not least in Italian paintings. He's a good artist in his own right. He specialized in the restoration of Italian paintings. And he acquired things along the way when he saw that something was overlooked. And this was one of the things he acquired. Uh, we don't know precisely when, but probably around about 1950. Um, when he died, his widow Jeanne um, was selling things uh, to finance her animal charities. Um, and she sold them via Christie's. So in relays over the years, she sent in things to be sold. And this, which she obviously had a special regard for, was in the last batch, or maybe even the last thing she sent in. Um, she sent it into Christus. She said, Giannino believed this was by Domenico Ghirlandaio, Leonardo's Florentine contemporary. And that is not a daft idea. Ghirlandaio did very beautiful, elegant portraits of women in profile. So it's it's certainly in the right area. Um, Francois Bourne of Christus said, oh, no, it's not. It's a it's a German Renaissance style work, took it out of its Italian frame, um, which Giannino oh. had probably adapted for it and put it in the German frame. Oh. <laughs> uh, it then appeared in Christie's auction, uh, the old master drawings auction in New York um, as anonymous German. And it sold for over $20,000, which is a high lot, for that. Mm. lot for anonymous German drawing. Yeah. So, and it sold to Kate Gantz, who is a major dealer and immensely well-informed and uh, with a high, high reputation. Um, she held it in stock. I suspect she bought it and thought, well, this is worth working on. She didn't uh, take up the research on that. And Peter Silverman, who'd seen it in the auction but uh, didn't have the money to compete with Kate Gantz in, in buying it, at that stage, saw it in Kate Gantz's or found it in Kate Gantz's business in New York and said, I'll buy that off you for the original sale price. 
And that's how it entered the hands of Silverman. And I suspect that Kate Gant's thinking, well, I've had this kicking around for some time. I've not done anything with it. Uh, so somewhat lost interest and it passed it on. Mm-hmm. So that seem, seems to be the immediate story. Uh, Peter Silverman then contacted various people, not myself in in the first instance, most notably Nicholas Turner, who was keeper of old master drawings at the British Museum and at the Getty, who is a um, yeah, a world-renowned um, historian of drawings, um, who wrote a report saying it's by Leonardo. Ah, from there it circulated to you? Yes, but Nicholas Turner said, oh, you really need, I, I know old master drawings, and I'm not ignorant about Leonardo, but you need... Uh, a reputable Leonardo person on board, and that's how it came to me. Wow. Now, I know that, you know, they're always uh, looking at both sides. You know, the skeptics say, well, it's on vellum, and sure, the vellum was tested and dated right in the right period, but their retort to that was that vellum is easy to get from that period. What do you say to that? This is entirely true, but if we take it back to, say, 1950, when uh, Janino Marshig had it, then carbon dating wasn't a, wasn't an issue, and uh, in mm. a sense, forgers don't protect themselves against uh, uh, diagnostic tests, which they don't know are going to be applied to it. Right. None of these things are 100%, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that tends tends to happen with some of these uh, arguments. They say, oh, well, you know, um, a forger would know that. But a number of the things we've unearthed in the, in the picture, including the, um, including the carbon dating, were simply not criteria which would have been applied at the time. Now, the, the one other argument that I've read about in some of these, you know, there's a lot of information online uh, on both sides of this Thing And one of the claims was that, you know, Leonardo's works were all documented um, because he was such a celebrated artist. Now, I know from the past, from doing a lot of research, that that's not always the case, no matter who it is. <laughs> Absolutely. The, his Mona Lisa documented, well, we know now in 1503 that he was painting a portrait of uh, Lisa Garadini, the wife of the salt merchant Francesco del Giacondo, but there is no absolutely definite tie-in to say, well, that's the picture in the Louvre. Mm. And with mm. our subsequent re- research upon this portrait, which I christened La Bella Principessa, perhaps rather stupidly, but it's stuck, uh, <laughs> we now know more about the origins of this portrait than we do about the Mona Lisa. You know, oh, wow, have- yeah more definite things. Uh, the, the St. Jerome, for instance, in the Vatican came from nowhere um, with, with no background. The Benoit Madonna in the Hermitage, and which uh, was really discovered in public in the early 20th century, is the last painting before the Salvatore Mundi came along, which has definitely stuck as a Leonardo. So, um, yeah, we... We often know remarkably little about these things, much less than we assume we know. So when you kept thinking about this piece being on vellum, can you discuss what your conclusion was? There are two aspects to that. One is that Leonardo did use vellum, um, 
when he illustrated the book of geometry on the five so-called platonic solids for his mathematician colleague in Milan, Luca Pacioli, Hmm. Uh, the illustrations of that, and I think the best copy is actually done by Leonardo. It's certainly absolutely in his studio, and I suspect that he, the best copy he he did himself, so that future copies could be um, could be accurate, um, is on vellum. Mm-hmm. So um, it was an elaborate presentation manuscript in that case for a man called uh, Galeazzo San Severino, who was. Um, the commander of Leonardo's forces, um, and we now think that the um, sitter in the portrait is actually the uh, the teenage bride of Galeazzo San Severino. <laughs> so that ties in quite nicely. Um, the other aspect is that looking back through Leonardo's writings, as you always have to do, um, I discovered. A text I really knew quite well. It's called the Ligny Memorandum, and it's a little series of notes, partly coded, um, of a memorandum to Ligny, the, the Duke who was commander of the French forces in Italy. Um, and there's a little memorandum. And then at the bottom, he, he writes um, about a man who call, he calls Jean de Paris. This is Jean Pareal. And he writes about getting the technique of dry colouring from Jean Perreal um, and uh, how to make many sheets, single sheets and many sheets. He talks about gum Arabic. And I'd always thought this was about what is called Arseco painting on walls. That's to say not painting in fresco and wet plaster, but painting on the already dried surface plaster of a wall. But reading it again and thinking about vellum, I thought, ah, he's actually describing um, how do you do this technique on vellum. And Jean Perreal was a pioneer of what in French is called the Trois-Crayon technique. That's to say... Um, drawings in coloured chalks, portrait drawings in coloured chalks, which are not fully coloured like a painting, but use uh, three basic coloured chalks to uh, give greater vitality and greater coloristic uh, um, impact to a portrait. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, one day you were looking at this and you noticed, well, first of all, the cut down along the bottom edge where a knife slipped and how you found the three holes along the edge, and all of a sudden you put it into place that this had to come out of a book? As well as having been looked at and written about the short report written by Nicholas Turner and and some other people had seen it, the scientific examination was already underway when I came in. Um, Peter Silverman had approached and engaged Pascal Cotte of Lumiere Technology in Paris to give it the works, as it were, to do uh, his his technique, multispectral scanning with uh, ultraviolet, infrared, etc., at full power. And Pascal had already done a lot of work by the time I visited him in Paris to look at the results. And it was he who noticed that in the lower left-hand border, you could see where the knife had slipped as somebody was cutting the vellum out of a volume of some sort. Vellum is very tough stuff, mm-hmm. even with a sharp knife. I mean, really tough old stuff. And um, 
Uh, it'd be like sort of cutting through a slightly thin version of your own shoe leather. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's like hardened leather, basically. Yeah, it, it's it's tough stuff. Anyway, the knife slipped at one point and went zoop, sort of slightly across the page, and then the person cutting it went back and probably made multiple further incisions before it. Uh, was slipped free of the of the binding, and Pascal already noticed that down the left side of it is is damaged. The the other side seem they're quite cl- clearly uh, cut, cleanly cut, uh, maybe original or certainly if the book had been trimmed or, or whatever, then um, uh, they're neat edges. The left edge is a bit of a mess, and he was able to pick up three signs which clearly indicated where stitch holes had been mm-hmm. they the, the work had been laid down on panel so the stitch holes are full of glue and were not um you know you can't it still hasn't been taken off the panel which would be a very d- difficult procedure so but anyway he was able under this extreme resolution and magnification to zoom in and say ah yes we've got three irregularly spaced holes down um, which are absolutely on the edge of the, the vellum sheet. Um, as the knife went down, of course, they would cut essentially across and between the holes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's all hyperbole, but you could assess or assume that whoever did this knew what the piece was when they cut it out of the book. And also, when it was laid down on the oak panel, was that approximately when you would guess that this was removed from the book by judging the age of the panel? Uh, the question of whether it removed from the book is is a tricky one, and um, <clears throat> we're still working on that. Uh, a young Polish scholar of my acquaintance, uh, Kasia Wozniak, is, is looking at the history of the books. It was in the library, the library of the great princes and humanists, the Zamoyski in Poland, and um, we know they had it in the in the 17th century. Hmm. And we also know that uh, there was a fashion for cutting nice things out of manuscripts. It now seems like pretty barbarous, but um, um, it was done a good deal. Miniatures were cut out, pages were cut out, um, and it was felt that you know, it's right to release them, as it were, from their prison. We wouldn't, uh, I hope, well, some dealers still do this, of course. They, they cut up manuscripts for this purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came out, my own suspicion is it probably was early 19th century. Um, whether it was laid down on the board at that point and whether the person cutting it out knew what it was, is very uncertain. I mean, it, it, there's no indication um, in where we think it came from or on the work itself. You know, it's not signed, but... Uh, uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be signed. The miniatures right. who decorated um, the volumes of the four decorative volumes we have of the book we think it comes from, the four versions, um, one the miniaturist has signed it and the others are not. So um, I think it's quite likely that whoever cut that out thought that's a beautiful, beautiful thing, which is better than simply being hidden away in a book and cut it out. And maybe at that time it laid it down on the board. Uh, the oak board, we investigated that. Uh, we don't have enough information in on that board, and it's not the sort of cut which allows tree ring dating to be done. Mm-hmm. Which is a pity. Yes. Now, Edward Wright, um, how did he know of this book when you were in the middle of all this research? 
How did he know where it was located and that it existed to begin with? Yeah, D.R. Edward Wright, or David Wright, as, um, as his friends and, and family know him. Um, I'd had some interaction with him before, but never met him. Um, but we sort of got on well at a distance, as it were. And he was attracted by the publicity, not least the uh, the attacks on it, and began to think about it on the basis of his extensive knowledge of um, iconography, of complex symbolism, um, which is one of the things he'd written a good deal on. And I'd given up any real hope, other than by accident, of finding which vellum book or vellum manuscript this came from. I thought, well, it's probably likely to be a volume of laudatory poetry, poetry in honour of one of the Swartzer ladies. Um, but where do you start? Do you start yeah. going through all the library catalogues in the world that have uh, Renaissance manuscripts? Um, even in this internet age, there's no way of um, of trawling all those things, and, and a lot of the material isn't catalogued in a way which allows a trawl anyway. So I'd more or less thought, well... Um, if somebody comes up with this, I'll be delighted, but I'm not going to do this needle in a haystack job. Anyway, David Wright wrote in um, and said, have you thought about the book in Warsaw? Now, this was a book which uh, was originally a printed book. It was uh, It's a eulogy, a history, a very laudatory account of the life of the current duke's father, um, the current duke was Ludovico il Moro, who employed Leonardo, Ludovico the Moor, Ludovico Sforza, um, and his father, Francesco Sforza. This is what this book was a, a eulogy of, originally written in Latin and then translated by Landino, the great Florentine scholar, into Italian. And this book was produced in printed form, but deluxe presentation volumes were produced for special events, uh, marriages and births, and uh, four of these have no, are known. Hmm. Um, he knew that, uh, that the one in Warsaw had been produced for the marriage of Galeazzo San Severino, the master of the uh, Sforza's armies, uh, a rather romantic and interesting figure, and he had married Bianca Sforza, who was Ludovico's illegitimate daughter, who had been legitimized by legal act. Mm -hmm. And I had hypothesized earlier that the sitter was Bianca Sforza. So David seized on that idea to say, what about the Warsaw Manuscript? Um, it's actually technically not a manuscript. It's a printed book on vellum, which is illuminated. So it's neither quite a manuscript nor is it quite a, a printed book. Hmm. Um, and it was it was a suggestion. You know, he said, well, it would make sense for it to come from that. The size is right. Was He knew what the size of both of them were. And uh, so it became obvious that it was made sense. And this was after we'd published uh, the book. Oh, really? Wow. In its English version. Yeah, we'd published the book in the English version. As I thought we got as far as we could. Um, David's intervention came after the publication of the book and the reviews of the book, particularly some of the more hostile reviews. <laughs> so we th we thought, well, you know, obviously let's get to um, Warsaw to look at this. In the meantime, David Murdoch of uh, National Geographic 
a filmmaker, a good, very excellent filmmaker, who made the one transmitted on Nova, approached me and said, we'd like to do something on this about the process, um, how science plays into this process. Mm -hmm. so he wasn't wanting to do it to say, oh, we're going to help you champion this as a Leonardo. They wanted to do it as to show what went on, uh, regardless of whether it turned out well or badly. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, we could have reconstructed Pascal's scientific examination, which and they certainly went over that. But at that particular time, suddenly we got all this new material. We'd got the book, which it was likely to, which it might have come from. So National Geographic um, um, decided that we should go to Warsaw. They provided a grant. I rather like the idea of having a grant from National Geographic. Things like I'm going off to Africa in a pith helmet or something. But um, anyway, uh, I, I mean, I never take money for owners from this. So I, I need a bit of research support money from elsewhere, as it were, and came from the, came from National Geographic. So we went off with the film crew, with David Murdoch, to a rather astonished Warsaw um, to, uh, to film... Pascal's technical examination of the manuscript and my or the book, my examination of the book, and Pascal took an absolutely meticulously made facsimile to see if it fitted. Mm -hmm. You showed the process of how, first of all, vellum books are made. They're always folded over sheets um, so they can hold by the stitching in the center of the, the sheets. And so you shot a high megapixel shot of the very edge of the book because it was very hard to actually see and then you blew it up and you're looking at the folds and you notice right up where the frontispiece should be in the book one of the folds doesn't come back around and it's the page which would actually be loose is actually glued to another page so what were you feeling when you discovered that <laughs> it was uh, it was one of those moments but it it wasn't quite as as simple as immediately seeing where it came from. Um, as you say, the all books which are stitched have gatherings or choirs um, of groups of pages. In the case of vellum, which is quite thick, um, the way this book is done, and it's quite common, is you take four double sheets and you stitch them through the middle, you fold them over, um, which ultimately gives you uh, 16 pages um, as each uh, fo folded sheet has um, has four sides on it. Uh, and the other books we know, and most of the, the gatherings or choirs in the Warsaw book, all have four pages, uh, four sheets, i.e. 16 pages. But the Warsaw book is not like that. It's got... Uh, at least three pages missing, hmm. not just one page missing. Um, and what is apparent from the other ones is that if you were doing an illumination, uh, whether it was painted as the Burago Frantis pieces are or as this is done in fixed um, ink and chalk, you faced it up with a blank sheet. Mm-hmm. So what we could see is, and we could reconstruct it, is that the original first choir or gathering of the book um, 
had had one and a half sheets removed from it. The one sheet that had got bits of text left on it had been stuck back in. So it, it, it's, it, it's quite complicated, but we were able to identify that that first um, choir or gathering had had uh, one and a half sheets excised from it, which then provided a location for the potential location for the portrait. When you actually slid the image, the right size, this, the identical image of this piece in, and the three holes lined up with the three original stitch holes, that's what I want to know. What was going through your mind at that point? It must have been pure elation. Yeah, having found what is the likely place for it, which was always the obvious place anyway, um, um, at the point where the book is being trumpeted after the letter of introduction and so on, when it really gets going. So um, we would expect it to be part of that first gathering of sheets. Anyway, Pascal had brought this um, very beautifully um, accurate facsimile and very gingerly, because we're being watched by hawk-eyed library staff, quite <laughs> rightly, um, we edged the portrait uh, into the gutter of the book, into the um, dip where, uh, where it, from which it had probably been excised. And uh, um, wow, it fitted. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, that, I can't imagine what you were feeling at that time. Now, also, what at this point makes you actually conclusively say that it was most likely a Leonardo because of the Schwarza family connection as a patron? In identifying something as by an artist, whether a grand artist or a lesser artist, uh, you need that accumulation of things. Um, if it's going to work in the longer term, you need to have it located in with the artist in terms of the artist style career, but you also need it to be embedded in the historical context. Um, in in this case, the Swartz Court, um, in this tradition of luxurious presentation books on vellum, even if they're initially printed printed books, um, you need aspects of the subsequent history of it if you can reconstruct a a chain of ownership, etc. So there is no one thing. Um, there is no one thing that um, locates the, the Mona Lisa. It's a great accumulation of things that fit, mm -hmm. uh, gathered up over the years. So it is, as I say, connoisseurship plus or judgment by eye plus. So, um, But one of the things I was trained as a scientist you always watch out for is that even if you have a hundred things which add up very well, if one definite thing goes badly wrong, then the whole house of cards collapses. The, leak, the weakest link. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. yeah, you only need one weak link. It can be, obviously, people can have counter-arguments around this and that and say, well, it could be a copy, but that's not that kind of thing. I'm thinking of something which um, either... Um, proved in some way that uh, it was definitely forged and uh, some forger <clears throat> comes historically out of the woodwork, they're likely to be dead now, or that um, some aspect of the analysis of it says, oh, well, this this cannot be earlier than um, mm -hmm. 1960 or something. So all the time you have to be aware that that single crunching negative can 
simply overwhelm all the other things. It's like doing an experiment. You can keep everything to be in line, but then if one bit of data comes out which says this theory is wrong um, and that piece of data is really hard, then, um, then it's wrong. Right. Now, we're just about out of time here, but I wanted to ask you, uh, of course, to say this is a once-in-a-lifetime situation is mundane compared to what it really is. Um, it's a once-in-several-centuries of an event to happen, in, in my opinion. But do you have another, like, real quick example of another situation that was pretty interesting that you uncovered? Well, I was involved, though not the discoverer and not the only person involved in the Leonardo painting, which came up at about the right time. And there's a joke in Britain that you wait for a bus and two come along at the same time. <laughs> and we've, we've waited over virtually two, uh, more than a century, and the two buses come along at the same time, as it were. Was this the drawing? No, this is a painting of the Saviour of the World, Christ the Saviour of the World, oh. which was exhibited in the in the Great Leonardo Show at the National Gallery in London. So, so I was involved in this. And you, you, you say it's a once in a lifetime event, and is you know it's bound to be extraordinary in the context of you know my experience and other people's experience, but say my experience for the moment. Oddly enough. Uh, I don't quite see it in that way. I would say that every time I say go to the Royal Library at Windsor and get an original Leonardo out of its cylinder box and look at it, and one of those miraculous drawings, say, of the Star of Bethlehem, the plant at Windsor, um, I would say that's as thrilling. Wow. So I, I regard this as a historical accident, <laughs> uh, uh, which is nice to have been part of, part of the accident, as it were. Uh, but what the big thrill is looking at a Michelangelo drawing or or whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. it, the experience is the thrill of the original, the thrill of what the original can do, even in this era of fantastically brilliant facsimiles. Um, so in that way, just as its ownership doesn't make any difference to me, whether it's owned by uh, 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 a king or a criminal, it's not the drawing's fault. Um, <laughs> so this historical accident, the, the key thing for me is the excitement and the, the sheer joy of what it is rather than the accident of its discovery. Wow. Well, well said. Well, thank you so much, Martin. It's been a real pleasure. Fascinating. Thank you. Okay, Martin. That's been good questions. It's nice to have met you. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.